Warning, Monkey's Crazy Mind contains language that may not be suitable for all listeners. Discretion is advised, but will be completely ignored. (laughs) We are going to do a new segment called Shoot Back, where I get feedback from you guys on what you think about the show. So let's see what everybody's talking about Money's Crazy Mind this week. Am I reading that right? I don't remember doing that. How'd you guys like the show? What the hell's going on here? I didn't do that. Oh, you guys are just going to make blind accusations about me now? I get it. Just because I'm doing Scientology, right? Okay. I'm sick of it. Doing right, doing wrong. Parents pissed off every time I write a song. Smoke crack, what's upsetting? What the fuck is that? It's something funny. Made for you to laugh at. You're destroying America with your rap. You're so full of shit, I need to call hazmat. The only way I would ever apologize is if I had my face buried in your sister's eyes. Okay, I'm sorry for what it's worth, but the best part of you was the afterbirth. If you can't take a fucking joke, then go jump in the river. Nah, 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 and I fucked your sister. If you can't take a fucking joke, then go jump in the river. Nah, 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 and I fucked your sister. Nurse Ratchet was being stingy with the day passes this week, so I am here in Spook Central, my mobile studio. And joining me in just a few minutes, we got Gary Wenner, Redline Radio LLC's own Gary Wenner. You hear him every Tuesday night from 7 to 11 p.m., spinning all the hits from the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. And then on the first Tuesday of every month, because you're very nice boys and girls, he gives you the 80s. And we sit down and we discuss the impact that Pink Floyd's The Wall has had on the music industry, the film industry, and the business part of the music industry since its release in 1979. This is the conclusion of Money's Crazy Soundtrack, Kick-Ass Albums, Volume 1, talking all about Pink Floyd's The Wall. So that's something you guys can look forward to every time we do a Kick-Ass Albums here on Money's Crazy Soundtrack, you will get all the history and the follow-up on the Money's Crazy Mind immediately following. Stay tuned to the end of Money's Crazy Mind to hear where you can catch the replay of Money's Crazy Soundtrack as we play The Wall, the live concert version of The Wall in its entirety, and we're going to give it to you a few times this weekend. So stay tuned for that information at the end of the show. Until then... Let's bring Gary on and let's discuss a little bit of Pink Floyd. All right, and I have the wild man, Gary Wenner, joining me. Redline Radio LLC's own Gary Wenner joining me. Now, if this guy looks familiar, he was on the Dynamite Dave show a couple weeks ago talking about a lot of what he's done in the past and everything like that. But Gary is on RedlineRadioLLC.com every Tuesday night from 7 to 11 p.m., and unless it's the first Tuesday of every month, 
He's playing the hits from the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s. And then, because he likes y'all, on the first Tuesday every month, he gives you the 80s. So that's mm-hmm. kind of why the Money's C- Crazy soundtrack stays away from the 70s, the 50s, the 60s, and the 80s, because I leave that up to the professional, Mr. Gary Wenner here. So, Gary, you're known as the Wild Man. Where did the nickname the Wild Man come from? You know, the funny part about it is uh, the nickname, I there was a station I was working at that I won't mention here, but mm-hmm. um, I was joining their air staff and they were making, they were, they sent a promo out of the, the lineup of the station because that back in the old days, um, stations would make promos with their jock lineup at, you know, mornings, it would be this guy, middays and so on and so forth. Well, they made, I heard this promo. And they said, you know, on, on uh, I think my time slot was Monday evenings. They said, and Monday night, Gary, the wild man, winner. And I'm like, I have a nickname. I didn't know that. <laughs> so I thought, well, it's out there now. So, okay, I guess I'm the wild man. So <laughs> that nickname was just was just thrown upon me uh, through no actions of my own. So I just took it and ran with it, which is what, you know, which is in radio, um kind of what you do you you take what's you know you just kind of take what's there and run with it so and it's you know we've been at this since um let's see uh it's been about six seven years now um so yeah it's it's been a it's been a fun ride and uh i came here to red line in uh 2019 just before the pandemic went crazy um and everything got shut down um lucky you (laughs) yeah yeah lucky all of us of course, you know, uh, being on radio or having a face for radio, um, you know, this is the perfect medium for me. But, uh, you know, we just kind of th- started throwing out what we do and kind of adding things to the show as we've gone along. Uh, you know, we brought in the memory grenades, um, which is basically kind of a those old throwback commercials from, from years gone by. Um, you know, and especially if, if you grew up in that in that time period, you know them, the rice aroni commercials. Um, you know, almond joy and mounds. You know, sometimes you feel like a nut, sometimes you don't. Uh, or even going into the 80s, those old Bartles and James commercials. We thank you for your support. Um, you know, if you grew up in those times, you remember those commercials. Um, so we put those in. Uh, and now our Star Spotlight series, where we pick an artist and we play a lot of music from them. Uh, last night, we spotlighted Diana Ross and the Supremes. And then we'll have another one coming up next week. And on the, And on May 3rd, we're going to go back to the 80s and do what we do um, 80s style. So uh, we'll have the, the flux capacitor ready to go and our Rubik's Cube and the and all that hairspray for the ladies. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, we're going back to the 80s. And that's May 3rd on our show. It's all 80s. And, it, and it's not just the hits. Um, I mean, we'll play some of those, certainly. But we'll also play songs that uh, traditional radio and, and has long since forgotten um and a lot a lot of great music um so we don't because we just played the hits we'd be like every other radio station and that's not what my program is about it's never what it's been about it's never what it's going to be about um you know and we actually play requests unlike your favorite radio station if there is such a thing anymore um we play uh we will actually play your requests because a lot one of the big things this is kind of like the radio version of the santa claus talk Mm-hmm. Um, is, you know, stations play requests. Well, no, not really. 
Um, if you call and request a song, and they'll always tell you the same thing. Oh, yeah, we'll try to get that on for you. Uh, and if it actually does play, it was because it was on the station's playlist anyway. Exactly. Um, it's, a, it's more of a coincidence than actually playing requests. But on our program, we will play the requests. Um, and if it's not in my library, if I can, I'll add it and put it on. Um, so, you know, I, I, I do that, oh, probably two or three times a show. I'm adding to the playlist. I think right now we're about five, 5,500 songs on the playlist. Your average radio station, for those that don't know, your average radio station's playlist is about two to 400 songs total. Uh, which is why you keep hearing the same songs over and over and over again. And then we can, I mean, I can get into a lot of radio talk and what rotations are and and songs that are played more often than others because, you know, there's medium and heavy and light rotation, but that's, that's another conversation for another time. Um, You know, we'll just, we'll play, we'll play the songs that you want to hear and songs that you uh, have long forgotten or said, Hey, what about this song? Like, okay, we'll get that on for you. We can do that. Yeah. Um, so I, I strongly encourage everyone uh, who has listened to the program. If you haven't listened to the program, I encourage you, invite you to tune in. Uh, if you are listening to the program, we thank you, and we hope you continue to listen. And if there's something you want to hear, please reach out to the Wildman. We'll get the song on for you. Yeah, you know, and so when I started Money's Crazy Soundtrack, you know, I started listening to your show a lot more often than I normally do. The 50s, 60s, 70s ain't really my forte. The, the, the 80s, though, you know, I was born in 1984, so you mentioned a flux capacitor, and I and I see your flux capacitor, and I raise you a proton pack, a ghost trap, and a PKE meter, sir. Okay, I see where you're at here. I'll uh, I'll carry those in my DeLorean. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, so like, cause I wanted to kind of just get a feel of how you do your show, and like you said, we're not terrestrial radio, we're internet radio, so we don't have a lot of the same constraints that those guys do. So. I'm a fan of deep cuts. I love deep cuts because those mm-hmm. are the songs that maybe most of the time it's like, yeah, you buy the album for the hit, you know, but then you, you get six, seven tracks in and you're like, whoa, that's cool. And, you know, that, that becomes like one of your more favorite songs on the album. I can't tell you how many times that's happened to me. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I listen to, I'm an eclectic guy. You know, I like country. I like some hip hop. I like rock. I like some older stuff, you know. So, and that's kind of what happened with, with this episode. I wanted to do something special to kind of show people, you know, that I do go a little bit further back than the 90s. And I, and I feel bad for stepping on your toes here by going into 1979, but this is a seminal album. It is the second highest grossing album of all time from this particular band. And because you are the 50s, 60s, and 70s guy, this is why I wanted to bring you on here. And I'm talking about the song that we just played on Redline Radio, or the album, I should say, in its entirety on RedlineRadioLLC.com, Pink Floyd's The Wall. And we did the live concert version just to give people that little something extra to look forward to when we played it, which, from what I found out when I was researching this a little bit more, didn't even come out until the early 2000s. Like, they found it laying around somewhere, and they're like, Oh, maybe we should release this. Deep in the vaults. Right. And I'm sure that probably turned into a huge fight between Roger Waters and David Gilmour, since those two fight about everything nowadays. Time of day, um, you know, whether coffee should have cream and sugar or should be black. Yeah, it's it's pretty much everything. 
uh, it makes you kind of wonder how those two ever managed to coexist in the first place. Yeah, it, it's 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 nuts. And, um, you know, it says that uh, Roger Waters was the one that actually conceived most of the album. And he did that during the In the Flesh tour and Model Pink after himself and former bad bandmate Sid Barrett, which this album was the first time Sid Barrett was not featured on a Pink Floyd album. This was the first album after his departure. Yeah, that is crazy. Although, you know, Pink Floyd, as uh, for many of you Floyd fans and some of you who may not know this, um, the name was actually derived from two blues musicians. Um, it was yeah, albums that Sid Barrett had in his collection, Pink Anderson and Floyd Council. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, a, that's a little known Floyd fact that a lot of people may not know. Yeah, and you had talked about their their highest grossing album of all time, and I'm sure Dark Side of the Moon. It's got a lot to do with the fact that people can pretty much do any drug that they want, turn on the album, turn on the Wizard of Oz, and apparently have a pretty nice trip. I guess those two sync up pretty well. Well, I think the Beatles got that started. Uh, (laughs) Well, they they first discovered all that when they were when they were making the Help album in 1965. Um, and George Harrison discovered the sitar. Um, and then from there, the rest, the rest, as they say, was history. Um, so yeah, by the, so by the time Pink Floyd got things going, yeah, they, that was already well established. Yeah. Um, so you would say that, you know, you can't really have a conversation about Pink Floyd without talking about Dark Side of the Moon. And I definitely agree with you on that. And there was only, I think there's only one album in between Dark Side and The Wall. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, Roger Waters told the story that on the Dark Side tour and obviously the In the Flesh tour, which is what led to this, um, he had some crazy run-ins with some fans. And during the, the tour, there was a guy sitting in the front row that want, wanted to start a riot. And judging by what I know about Olympic Stadium in Montreal, because... It happened to Metallica there, too. That seems to be a somewhat common occurrence. Yeah. Um, so this guy was, like, beating on the stage and, like, pushing people around him. And, you know, I didn't know mosh pits were a thing back in the 70s, but apparently this guy was trying to start the trend. Um, and he, Roger Waters said he got so pissed off at this fan that he did the one thing he thought he would never do, and he spat on a fan to try to get him to stop. And that that's kind of what started molding the character of Pink, which mm-hmm. is the main character on the album, The Wall. Yeah. And that's kind of where the idea of some of that came from. And, uh, you know, you, you hear the band take a turn of sound on Dark Side of the Moon into this more symphonic, you know, more of an entertainment extravaganza feel on their albums and i think dark side started oh absolutely dark side of the moon was clearly pink floyd sergeant pepper um yeah yeah, clearly um you know they were they were honing their craft i mean they recorded seven albums before dark side um so they were they were pretty well versed in in how to record an album and, and how to make a and how to make a good record um but yeah dark side was their sergeant pepper and that's where it really got interesting for them. Album was released in early 1973 um, and had a run from 73 
all the way to 88, they were on the Billboard album charts. Yes. And it was like 750-some consecutive weeks um, on the album chart. Now, here's the crazy part. For all of those weeks, and I think now total, it it has since re-entered the charts, and I think it has like 950 weeks on the Billboard album chart, which is far and away a record. Um, But here's the crazy part, and I know you know this. Um, For all of the weeks it was at, it was on the album charts, the album was number one on the album chart for a single week. That is crazy, and it, 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 like like you said, you cannot discuss Pink Floyd without discussing Dark Side of the Moon, and to think that it was only on the charts at number one for one week is just, it, it's mind-blowing to me. Every, every yeah. time I have a discussion with somebody, and either I bring that up or they bring that up, I'm still, it, it, like, it's the first time I'm hearing it every time, because you just don't hear of an album being as iconic as Dark Side of the Moon. Well, honestly, you know what, Lee, I I will rebut that and say a lot of your iconic albums and songs, especially when you go into the genre that we know today as classic rock, most of those albums and songs, if they charted, it was a very, it was at a very low or, you know, very, very low number. Um, It might have, like for an album chart, it might have snuck into the 90s. On the bill, it wouldn't have. It wouldn't have. A lot of these songs never sniffed the Hot 100. Um, so, a chart is a chart position or weeks on a chart is not necessarily indicative of how a song is going to go. Oh yeah. I mean, when you can, I mean, for I mean, this is a completely different band, but when you consider a Van Halen or a Foreigner, um, who really until the mid 1980s finally hit number one and. Eddie's pop song "Jump" from the 1984 album, and then uh, "Foreigner" with a love ballad. I want to know what love is. '84, um, when they finally broke through on the pop charts. But as we all know, both bands are iconic and have a gr- and have great bodies of work. Absolutely. Uh, so chart positioning is not always indicative to uh, what is what an iconic song or iconic album is. So. While surprising at 950 weeks on the chart and only being number one once, um, while not you know while a little surprising, it really isn't in a lot of ways. Okay, you know maybe it's just because you know I was born in '84, you know, so I know some of the '80s stuff. But you know, in the '90s, you know, I think one of the very first albums I ever heard about you know topping charts was Metallica's Black album, and that was number one for. I mean, it's probably still number one if you look on certain charts out there. So, and, and for that, and for that genre, that album is iconic. Oh, absolutely. it's a, it, it is a, it is it is it is their dark side in some ways. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Some would argue that was probably Master of Puppets, but you know, I mean, nothing beat the album sales that they have and still right. have to this day on that album that's it's not even called the black album it just kind of got redubbed that because it was an all-black cover right <laughs> like the beatles um, white album yeah for sure yes. yeah yeah it, that's that's a, that's actually a pretty good album right there oh but... it absolutely is it's, it's a complete and total departure from anything that he had done even from sergeant peppers it went it was kind of going further out now you can say oh it was the drugs and 
you know, they were they were plenty high by that point, and they were. But um, that was another departure because they were they were diving further and further musically into where they really wanted to go. Um, and really, and I, I think Bono said this the best uh, when he said that you, you got to keep changing, you got to keep moving, because the Beatles could have just kept cranking out pop albums and everybody would have been happy. Um, but the thing is, musically, you have to keep experimenting. You have to keep doing things. Now, the Beatles' early success allowed them to do that, yeah. um, and 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 you know, and it worked out for them. And those albums are classics, all of them. You know, the pop albums, um, you know, Dark Side, even the movie soundtracks. The movies were nothing to write home about, but you know, it spawned a lot of hits. And when they first came out in '64, they had. They had at one time the top five songs in the country on the Hot 100. All of, were all theirs. That hasn't been done before or since. Um, no. But then, but that that early success allowed them to experiment, and they started to go that way with Rubber Soul, and then they went to Sgt. Pepper, and on and on and on. I know I'm getting off track here, but yeah. the, the the whole point is you have to keep changing musically, and I think Bono hit it on the head when he said that. So we kind of touched on this briefly here, um, but, you know, guitarist and singer-songwriter David Gilmour refused to perform a final encore and sat at the soundboard, leaving the band with having to go with Snowy White, their backup guitarist, for some of the wall because of the issues that Gilmour and Waters had. Waters saw Pink Floyd going in one direction. He saw the success of Dark Side. He saw the success of everything after Dark Side. And The Wall, obviously, is a very, very heavy Roger Waters album. Mm -hmm. Almost every idea on this album came from him. And even on the final cut, which was originally just going to be called The Spare Bricks, because there were songs that they recorded for The Wall. That didn't make it onto the album, so they put they included them on the final cut. Yes, and which also that came out the same year as the movie, so it only made sense yeah. for them to, to 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 add those songs on, especially since some of them ended up in the film version of yeah. the wall. Um, but you know, we had discussed this when I talked to you last week. Um, Britannia Row Records, which was their original record label, since they are a British band said the album had to be 90 minutes it couldn't be any longer than that even though it was a double lp which at that time was kind of unheard of yeah and you know and roger waters still to this day says it is not a double album it is just a an album that required two lps to get it to fit and he said even though you can fit all of the wall on one cassette tape and one cd they refused to do it and still combine you know break it apart into two and i argue that because i have yet to met meet a cd that can hold 90 minutes of music but your average cd only holds 80 exactly exactly so when the wall came out on november 30th 1979 which was a short two weeks from them record finished recording it they finished recording it actually on my birthday, but nobody knew it was going to be my birthday yet because I wasn't nowhere near us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were still, you weren't even thought of at that point, as as uh, as older people like to say. Exactly. Um, November nineteenth, nineteen seventy nine. They had finished recording the album, and it was out November thirtieth. 
Um, what was the reaction from people when they first heard the wall in its entirety? I think there was a lot of time spent just not knowing what to make of it because um, it was just so different. Um, stations were, I mean, there were stations that were playing it. Um, yeah. I mean, they, they were, it was getting, it was getting some airplay, what they could, you know, another brick in the wall, of course, became a hit. Um, and the, you know, the, the edited version or radio edit, what do you want to call it? Um, mm. Shortened for radio. So back in those days, a radio edit meant shortened for time. A radio edit now means all the swear words are cut out. Yeah. Um, but so, you know, there was, it was getting some airplay and some response, but I just think people were just not, not really sure what to make of it. Um, you know, what is this and trying to figure it out. But, but I, I think people figured it out you know, pretty quickly because they'd already heard Dark Side and knew what the band was capable of doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the funny thing is it hit just before MTV. Because it was about, you know, a little bit, a little less than what, uh, two years later when MTV hit the air. Um, I don't remember it getting a lot of MTV airplay because um, it was, I, I think at that time it was considered old. Although well, two I years for the another brick in the wall part two maybe yeah I think it it might have gotten some I don't necessarily recall that it got a ton of it um, yeah. you know well, that in was 1982 the movie had come out which is when the which is when I think they finally recorded the music video for it because yeah. they put the yeah. Gerald Scarf animation in and they used some of the moments from the film in the music video well the so ba- I'm wondering. The band, like everybody else, you know, once they saw what MTV could do, you know, they're all rushing to record videos of their songs. Um, you know, Pink Floyd wasn't the only one. Um, right. You know, they're all trying to get they're all trying to get videos played on MTV to get exposure and to you know to and to open up market to new fans, uh, as opposed to the ones who were listening to AOR radio, which is which was where Pink Floyd was. That's where their home was. Um, AOR, for those who don't know, is called album-oriented rock, and that was actually a format back in the day. Uh, for you Clevelanders, that's what WMMS was uh, for years and years and years. And M105, uh, for those of you a little older that remember that, um, that's what their format was, and that and, and that was great because they would play album cuts, they'd play hits, of course, but they'd also play album cuts. Um, and in some cases, they would do. I remember MMS would do. Uh, world premiere exclusives, which means they'd play they'd play the whole album, mm-hmm. um, and and really put it out there. Um, they would do that a lot, and I'm sure they probably played the wall in its entirety at some point in time. Um, I don't remember it necessarily, but um, I'm sure they probably did because that was a big deal. Because you know, Dark Side, of course, put them on the map. Um, you know, at that point. Anybody who was anybody in radio, okay, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, pay attention to them. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas before that, it's like, okay, yeah, they're there, and we don't really have to worry about them. But you know, when you when you play, then there's Dark Side. It's like, okay, yeah, there's something, there's someone we gotta watch. Yeah, yeah, and I know I, I'm not sure about MMS because obviously I wasn't alive back then. My mom said she didn't remember them playing it in its entirety either. They may or may not have. I don't recall, but. I know, I know they got airplay on MMS because that's where, again, that's Pink Floyd's home was AOR stations, which MMS was and M105 was in Cleveland and stations liked them around the country. Yeah, and um, here's something really interesting 
by September, when they were recording the album, they were having uh, financial problems and urgently needed to produce an album to make money. Uh, financial partners Norton Wahlberg, uh, Warburg Group had invested 1.3 to 3.3 million pounds and up to 19.4 million pounds in contemporary value of the group's money in high-risk venture capital to reduce tax liabilities. The strategy failed. <coughs> when many I recall that now that you mentioned that. I seem to remember something about that, how they were, yeah. they, were hurting, they were hurting for cash for a time. Yeah, so Roger Waters uh, said that the, they had uh, tax rates as high as 83% during that time. Uh, and he said, we made dark side, and it looked as if we had cracked it. Then suddenly these bastards stole it all. It looked as if we might be faced with huge tax bills for money for the money that had been lost. 83% was a lot of money in those days. It still is today, sir. Oh, yes. Uh, in those days. And we didn't have it. They immediately terminated their relationship with NWG, demanding the return of their uninvested funds. By force of necessity, I had to become closely involved in the business side, said David Gilmore, yep. because no one around us had shown themselves sufficiently capable or honest enough to cope with it. And I saw, uh, and I saw with Norton Warburg that the shit was heading inexorably toward the fan. <laughs> so the yeah, it kind of came out of necessity of them losing a ton of money the business of radio and the business of music they're not pink floyd isn't the first to have experienced it the hard way um Nor will they many of your many of your older artists even going back to the 50s have little or no royalties to show for their works mm -hmm. um and a lot of that of course the, of course that goes back into um for these, for the black artists that record these songs, white artists would cover them so they could get some radio airplay because they were keeping those, keeping those artists and those songs off the airwaves. Mm -hmm. So white artists would cover them, and as a result, they weren't receiving a lot of royalty um, for their music. And I know that's that's changed. The, the landscape has changed a lot, and a lot of those artists who are still living are now receiving their royalties. Um, but Pink Floyd isn't the first to having to having gotten the business end of the business um and, and having it hurt them so you had said in some of our earlier conversations that this album was far and beyond its time because of a lot of the things that it was covering in some of these songs you know i mean you have comfortably numb nobody home uh and even songs like you know another brick in the wall part two where it talked about the abuse that these kids were seeing in schools um, Goodbye Blue Skies, which was obviously more based on World War II, which is where Waters had gotten a lot of his inspiration for this album mm -hmm. because of his father being part of the of the Queen's Army or at the King's Army at that time. Um, and, you know, just dealing with all of that. And um, there's topics that get brought up on this album. That, I mean, even still today, 40 some odd years later, we're barely scratching the surface of where some a lot of this stuff is originating from and all of that. You know, I'm talking about like depression, PTSD. Um, Which nobody was talking about in 1979. Yeah, and I don't even think anybody knew what the half, half of that shit was back in 1979. No, no, a lot of them didn't. But now 
especially with all the craziness that has surrounded COVID-19 and, you know, the, and, and the aftermath of it, um, these, a lot of these things are certainly coming to light. Um, there's mental health awareness things going on now, um, and, right, and rightly so. Um, you know, these things should be talked about. Um, but, you know, they were talking about it in 1979, and now everybody's like, oh. And I think, and I think people are either rediscovering the album or discovering it for the first time. Yeah, you know. and that—that's huge to me. You know, because like when I first heard the Wall, I, I had to say I was like probably twelve, thirteen years old, mm-hmm. and at that point I was dealing with some things that you know, as a kid, nobody ever wants to deal with. Right. I, two years removed from my parents getting divorced, you know. So for a twelve, thirteen-year-old kid, that's a lot to deal with. Sure. You know, and then you have your mom's side of things that were going on. You have your dad's side of things, you know. So you're hearing two different stories as to what's going on and everything else. And just hearing a lot of the topics that, and believe it or not, and I don't care who believes this and who doesn't, the first time I ever heard The Wall was on vinyl. It was not. And that's the way it should have been heard. And I got to tell you, I I have a new respect for the album because I heard it that way first. I've heard all, every digital remaster that's come out since, but it, there is something about listening to that album on vinyl that just mm-hmm. makes it that much more special because you hear the cracks, the pops of, of the needle and everything else. It, and the album came out at the time of vinyl, so that should be the way that you discover it, in my opinion. You should, yeah. Those those two albums, Dark Side. Dark Side should be in everyone's album collection. I don't care if you've never listened to the album; it should still be in your library. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and it, it even deals kind of with you know some of the topics of divorce and even you know, like you know mm-hmm. cheating and things like that. You know, because right before um, what song is it? Uh, one of my turns. He tries calling his his house in England because he's on tour in the states. And a man keeps answering the phone at his house. And I think that this was beautifully portrayed in the film version. Where he's sitting there at the payphone, And he starts slump, slumping down the wall when he realizes my wife is cheating on me because I'm on tour in the States. And she can get away with it. Yep. You know, and then that turned into Young Lust and all those other songs. And you know, he even said that he never partook in any of the groupie sex or anything like that when they were on tour for Pink Floyd. I don't know how much I believe that, but that's what he said on BBC Radio. I'll leave it at that. Uh, <laughs> um, take him at his take him at his gentlemanly word. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, and you know, he but he said that he'd heard stories, obviously from Sid, from David, from some of the other members of the band, and that's kind of where the concept for Young Lust came from. And I mean, there's just so many different topics on this album, but it tells a complete story of a man who was just had enough had a breakdown and when comfortably numb kicks in that song is actually told from the uh standpoint of a doctor that had to give him uh epinephrine shots Mm -hmm. and everything to get him awake enough to be able to go on stage and perform and he said that he actually he, he said that because like they're in it for the music. Yes, the money is good, but they like telling these stories. They like writing this music. But he knows that from a concert-promoting standpoint and a record label standpoint, the only thing the record label cares about is that that concert go-
goes off without a hitch and that the band plays because that is the only way they're going to make money. Yeah. If the if a band cancels a concert, obviously they have to refund all those tickets. They're not going to make any money off of merchandise, off of record sales, off of concessions, and right. they're screwed. You know. So I actually applaud Rogers for actually putting that out there. That even back in 1979, these people were ruthless. Probably even more ruthless than some promoters are today. But. There's a lot of there's a, there's a lot of snakes in that pit, and I'll, and I'll just leave it there. Um, I mean, I could get into um, you know, like even Elvis's manager, Colonel Tom Parker, um, total snake, Elvis, who, total yeah. snake. Um, even Johnny Cash's was to some point because when Cash was at his lowest, when he was on pills. Yep. Yep. But you know what? It's it's a it's a cutthroat business, as we all say about everything. Uh, but it was certainly it's certainly true in the music music business. It was then, it still is today. Oh, yeah. Um hell, our medium, radio, is absolutely that way. Um, you know, I I've seen a lot in my twenty five years in this business. Um I've experienced some of it and I've seen a lot of it. Um it's it's crazy cutthroat. Anything about entertainment, uh the entertainers and now the business I think is catching up with a lot of these artists like a Pink Floyd. Um that are, you know, that are splintered within the ranks. Um, you know, you've got bandmates taking each other to court over name, over name usage, royalties. Um, a lot of, you know, a lot of these classic bands. I mean, the Beach Boys, uh, the Doors was another one. Um, when John Densmore couldn't perform anymore because of his hearing, um, he took, he took uh, Ray Manzarek, who's since deceased, um, and Robbie Krieger to court over the use of the name, and they had to call themselves the Doors of the 21st Century. Um, in, you know, in touring, um, it, it's the splintering of these bands because of the business part of it now um, is is kind of crazy. And you know, here again, and, and Pink Floyd obviously is no exception to that. Of course, a lot of their a lot of their issues was creative, but the other part, I'm sure, is about business. Yeah, and, and I think so, too, because, I mean, it's like we've heard David Gilmore, you know, sit there and say that because he kind of did take over that financial side of Pink Floyd, that he owns a lot of the intellectual property when it comes to the band. Roger Waters, since he was the creative force behind a lot of their music, is saying that he owns the intellectual property. And they actually went to court over the intellectual property that is for this exact album which is why Roger Waters is now the only member of Pink Floyd who is allowed to do The Wall live at any point now. David Gilmore had done it a few years ago. I want to say maybe like 2000, 2007, 2008. Yeah, and they went to court over it. I remember that. They went they went to court over it. Because that, that's a hard line to straddle. You having yeah. all the creative part. Well, the most the most glaring example I can think of is Paul McCartney. Yes. Um, who, you know, who Michael Jackson, before he died, bought up all the Beatles catalog and everything had to be light. All the Beatles music was licensed through Michael Jackson, um, which drove McCartney nuts. Because, I mean, you know, along with John Lennon, Paul created, created all that stuff, all those songs he wrote. And then you found out video games and commercials and it drove McCartney crazy. Um, but that's, you know, that's, again, that's the business end biting someone in the butt. Um, 
as Paul very innocently told Michael when they worked together, uh, recording a couple of songs, he says, you know, you really should pay more attention to the business side of it and really take care of yourself. Well, he listened and bought up all the Beatles stuff. <laughs> now, um, Sony owns yeah. it. Um, yeah. After Michael's estate, uh, Sony bought it all up. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's one of the, you know, one of the few Beatles left. Actually, I think he might be one of the only Beatles left. Well, no, it's just him and Ringo. Uh, yeah. John, obviously, is gone, and so, too, is George Harrison. George Harrison, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and I would hope now that Sony owns all of that, that they would be giving at least Paul some kind of cut of money. Um, I don't know. I don't know. The, I don't know that part of it, but they, they bid some crazy amount for it and got it. Um, yeah. Paul doesn't need the money. I mean, he's fine. He's got more money than and any six people in his family will ever spend. So it's not like he's hurting for cash, but at the same time, to not have ownership of stuff that you created uh, has to be hard. This has to be a hard pill to swallow. And that's and I'm sure that was the that was the causation of the Waters Gilmore feud. Um, one person owns it, the other person created it. Exactly. You know, and kind of and the same thing. And not to get way off topic here, but. This is the way I equate to it because these are the stories I know because this is more the kind of nerd I am. Um, but the same thing happened to Bill Finger, Joel Schuster, Jerry Siegel, the guys that created Superman and Batman. Because when DC Comics went to make Superman the movie in 1975, 1977, somewhere. Uh, the first Superman movie was 78, I do believe. 78, okay. Um, Christopher Reeve, yeah, 78, I, I do believe. Um, the Siegel and Schuster Foundation, or the the families, I should say, of those two, because obviously they were long past, long past at that point, had said, "Hey, our family created this character. We have not seen a penny, yep. and this character has been around for all these decades. I mean, Superman was originally created in the '30s in Cleveland. In Cleveland, and so it took." the Siegel and Schuster families taking DC comics to court and Warner brothers uh, movie uh, studio collectively because Warner brothers owns DC comics to get some kind of payment to the Siegel and Schuster families that they still receive today. And in every Superman comic that has been released since it says by permission of the families of Jerry Siegel and Joel Schuster. Yep. And Bill Finger actually was the one that gave Bob Kane a lot of the ideas that we know now know as Batman. Yeah. And Bill Finger has seen nothing. The man died poor because Bob Kane lied to DC Comics about his involvement. And it wasn't until just uh, 2013 that Bill Finger finally started getting credit for the creation of the Dark Knight. Mm -hmm. So it's not just music. Where oh, no, no, each other. no, it's any, anything creative. Um, mm -hmm. You know, entertainment is, is a, is a large source for that thing, but I mean, and we could, and we could really go on and on about all this stuff right. and about all the instances everywhere else. But um, yeah, I mean, Pink Floyd has had, you know, they've had quite a career, they are certainly iconic, um, and rightfully so, even if you just want to just talk about the two albums, um, which really is quite a body of work just with the two albums. 
well, then you yeah. start considering some of the other works um you know then you know that adds that just makes it even more impressive but uh you know certainly certainly pink floyd is 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 well known for those in the classic rock genre which is where they currently live basically um but uh and money i mean and the and the songs are even covered too um oh yeah there's actually a I, I, there's a jazz version of Money that I think is priceless. Um, it's yeah, cut by a singer named Kitty Margolis out of San Francisco. Yes. And she cut it, I want to say, early 2000s. Um, and I, I actually played this on the air. I, I worked at a station that played jazz for a time, and I actually put it on the air. Um, and I was listening to it, I was like, whoa, that's different. It's completely different than than the Pink Floyd version. Um, there are no there are no cash register sound effects. There is no heavy driving bass or guitar or drums. It's just basically it's her singing with some slight instrumentation in the background. Um, it's really tremendous, and it's not the only version. There are several cover versions of it by a whole wide range of artists. And I've I've seen I, I can't name any in in particular, but there's also been wall covers as well. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, I was just about to get into that. Um, there obviously another brick in the wall part two is probably the most famous song of all time from the wall. Yeah. I mean, I love comfortably numb, but that's just me. Um, well, you're not alone in that. You're not you're not alone in that at all. Um, there's a lot of those. Um, my favorite Pink Floyd tune, believe it or not, one of these days. Oh yeah, that's a good one too. Instrumental, love it, love it. Mm-hmm. I get pumped up when I hear that song. Uh, yeah. Just it's simple, um, you know, just driving, uh, driving bass and guitar um, and the drums. I mean, that's just that's rock band stuff. Um, I absolutely love it. Yeah, um, and it, but you know, we were talking about covers. Um, the heavy metal band Corn, yeah, actually covered another brick of the wall part one, part two, part three, and Goodbye Cruel World, and put it. On yeah, the that's right. Album. They did as one big long track. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, I've heard so many cover versions of another brick in the wall part two. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them actually opened the movie The Faculty back from the year two thousand. I remember that. Um, yep. Mm-hmm. You know, so I mean, it, it's it's a great great record, um, and it, it's kind of funny because the interview that I played following the live concert version of the Wall with Tommy Vance from BBC Radio One is actually highly quoted because of everything that Waters talked about mm-hmm. on, on in that interview. Um, uh, and he actually played the album in its entirety on BBC Radio 1, which makes sense seeing as how Pink Floyd is an English band. Um, Kurt Loder, when he was reviewing the album for Rolling Stone, hailed it as a stunning synthesis of Waters' by now familiar thematic p- obsessions that leaps to life with a relentless lyrical rage that's clearly genuine and it's painstakingly particularly ultimately horrifying however, sounds like Kurt Loader mm-hmm. however the village voice critic Robert Christgau regarded it as a dumb tribulations of a rock star epic 
backed by kitschy minimal maximalism with sound effects and speech fragments. Well, it's called it's called art. And artwork is not just something that's on a wall in a museum. No, it is not. It, it's any movie, any cartoon, any comic book, any music, anything that you want. However, they gave it a B plus. The Village Voice did. Well, you know, you but you, you know about reviews are not always um, on point, and it's no. you know, and it really it, it involves one's personal tastes. Uh, it's almost hard to be a reviewer because your personal tastes may not be those of your readers. I am so glad that you said that because film reviews for the last decade, ever since the creation of Rotten Tomatoes, have just irritated me to no end because it just seems like a movie lives or dies by its Rotten Tomato score anymore. And the movie could be absolutely amazing, but if Rotten Tomatoes says the film sucks, it's going to be trashed no matter what. Well, and before that, it was uh, it was the two film critics from the Chicago newspapers, Gene Sisko and the late Roger Ebert. Yes, yes, absolutely. How- that was required. That was that was must see TV to watch what they thought of your show. Um, I think I think Sisko worked at the Tribune, and I think Ebert worked at the Sun Times. Um, but yeah, they did. They would do that half hour show, and of course, the goofy, you know, the Ace Ventura movies that got got torn apart. Uh, which you knew they would be. Well, yeah, but uh, neither one of those guys were like, oh, it's terrible acting, the sound effects are terrible, and blah, 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 and this and that and that and this. Um, What you were looking for them was to review movies like The English Patient or Schindler's List. Um, Those were the things. But, yeah, reviews, it's it's just, it's your your personal taste art. It may not be that of your readers or your viewers. Mm. Um. And that's why, and I think most people understand that and take reviews with a grain of salt uh, because you have to, Um, to try to, you know, to to try to handicap that is, is incredibly hard. Um, You know, I mean, guys like that aren't going to like an Ace Ventura. Well, whereas, you know, we think that stuff's hilarious Um, and vice versa, you know, and we like the English patient, which was a great film, not my cup of tea, or I'm guessing yours either, but. Um, you know, it's, it's really, it's, 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 it's personal taste and that's all. But the whole point of this is, you know, that's artwork and this is artwork too. Visual, you know, it's, whether it's visual art, whether it's sound art, um, it's, it's all, it's art and they are artists for a reason. That's why they're called artists because they are creating something, um, now, depending on what your opinion of it is, okay, it is what it is. But that's just as much, the Wall album is just as much of an artwork as a Van Gogh painting in a museum. No more, no less. You know, and it kind of it goes to, like, kind of what we're talking about here. This album has been around for 40-plus years. Mm-hmm. And just last year, t- 2021, it was ranked as the 39th all-time greatest album by Billboard Records. It charted 39th. And interesting. Yes. What did Dark Side rank? You know? Um, 
I did not look up Darkseid, but I because this is all just one article that's about right, that. right, yeah. But I, you got to think Darkseid's on that uh, on that list, and perhaps a little higher than that. Oh, probably. Although probably. still being a being a top forty all time album, that's not a bad thing. No, absolutely not. So, um, for me, the wall hits in a different way than I think a lot of people my age may look at it. Yeah. Um, you know, and I and I'm kind of born in that era when Pink Floyd was still a little bit around. But you know they broke up not too long after I was born, or maybe even a little bit before I was born. Yeah, they were they were certainly it was the, it was the end of the line of what we knew as Pink Floyd um, at that time. And by the time they got into the eighties, Gilmore had done a solo project, had a minor hit with a tune called Blue Light, um, and uh, and then they say th- and then they did uh, Learning to Fly. I think that was a hit. That was actually a hit for Pink for the whatever configuration of Pink Floyd in the late eighties, eighty eight, I think. Um, that might have gone to number one, if I recall. I mean, I may be wrong about that, but I know it was a, it was a huge hit for for Floyd um, yeah. at that time. And the reason why I say it hit differently for me, um, I didn't know what I was going through back right. then in, in that part of my life. I mean, obviously, I knew my parents were divorced. I knew I had these weird feelings, and I just remember after the first time hearing the wall. And I mean, I, I you know, it was a old it had to be either my mom or dad's old vinyl player or old LP player as it was known back then. And I just had, you know, headphones on and I just sat there and I just listened to it in its entirety while I was doing my homework one day. And at the end of it, I'm sitting there and I'm like, I feel like this guy. I understand a lot about what this guy's talking about. And it wasn't until I got into my twenties and I finally started learning about depression and anxiety and all these different Mm -hmm. things that, you know, I had been, probably should have been diagnosed with back when I was 10 or 11 years old, you know, after my parents divorced and everything, but you know, nobody knew even back then uh, really a lot about that stuff. It was still very taboo even back then. But by the time I got into my twenties, it was a little bit more commonplace and everything. And I'm like, Holy crap. He's singing about depression. He's singing about PTSD. He's singing about all these things. And like every time I listen to the wall, you know, my wife looks at me a little crazy because she's like, why would you want to listen to something that's that crazy and that out there? And I'm like, but when you sit down and you listen and you put together, it resonates with you. It resonates. Yes. And And that's the mark of a great piece of artwork is that the the listener can relate to it. Does that does that piece does what you are saying resonate with the listener? That is the mark of a great piece of art. Yes, and and you know, like you said, I mean, Dark Side and then everything subsequently, you know, it had a different feel than anything that Pink Floyd had done before. And I even think the Wall had a little bit of a different feel than even Dark Side and even you know, oh sure the albums, sure yeah you know, all, all the albums before and you see a lot of what Roger Waters' creative vision for The Wall was when they took it on tour in 1980. Name me any other band that encases themselves completely behind a cardboard brick wall for half of the concert. A little different. The fans don't get up and leave. Because... the, and believe it or not, we said earlier that they were an English band. 
The wall no. tour opened in Los Angeles at the Memorial Sports Arena on February 7th, 1980. And as the band kept playing, a 40-foot wall of cardboard bit bricks was gradually built between them and the audience. Several characters like the school teacher, the wife, and uh, I believe the judge from the trial mm-hmm. were all realized in giant inflatables, including a pig, repel it with the cross hammer logo that we saw from the second version of in the flesh gerald scarf was employed to produce a series of animations that were being projected on the wall during the second half of the film or the concert i should say at his london studio he employed a team of 40 animators to create nightmarish versions of the future including a dove of peace a schoolmaker and pink's mother mm-hmm. For Comfortably Numb, while Waters sang his opening verse, Gilmore waited in the darkness at the top of the wall, standing on a flight case of on casters held steady by a technician, both precariously balanced atop of a hydraulic platform. Bright blue light uh, and white lights would suddenly illuminate him. At the end of the concert, the wall collapsed, revealing the band, along with the songs on the album the tour featured, an instrumental version called The Last Few Bricks, which went in between Another Brick of the Wall Part 3 and Goodbye Blue Sky so that they could finish building the wall. Mm-hmm. And it also- well, that was, a, that was a big thing in the 1970s was um, a, an actual stage show um, where you had you had characters, actors. Um, Pink Floyd wasn't the first to do it, but they certainly maximized it and made it work for them. Yes, and unfortunately, as we had been talking about, uh, during the tour, the relationship between the band dropped to an all-time low. Four separate Winnebago's were parked in a circle with the doors facing away from the center. Waters used his own vehicle to arrive at the venue, stayed in separate hotels from the rest of the band. Wright, returning as a salaried musician, was the only member of the band to profit from the tour, which lost 400,000 pounds. which is insane to think about because all eight shows at Earl's Square or Earl's Court, which is in the, the London version of the show, were sold out. And they even mentioned that during the interview that Roger Waters did in 1979. Yeah. <sighs> Business. So <laughs> what was the reception, if you heard any, to the stage show of the wall and you know that's something that oh they loved it people loved it they ate it up and that's they totally ate it up does anymore bands do not just go on tour and play their entire album and i've never i mean i think pink floyd is probably the only band that i've ever heard of doing that i know metallica recently did it for the anniversary of there are some acts that will do that Especially if they have what's called a concept album, which the which the wall clearly was, um, you'll you'll find you'll find acts that do that. But as a general rule, concerts anymore, and really have always been much about playing the hits, um, you know, stuff that people want to hear. Um, you know, the songs that they're known by, either you know the hit singles, or you know they're more they're they're popular songs that everyone knows them by. Um, Plus, you know, they might, you know, some new or some different material. 
Um, Jimmy Buffett, of course, still plays Margaritaville and, and will until he dies because, well, he should. Um, but also does a lot of that crazy, you know, all that, all that stuff. He'll bring in, you know, he'll bring in guys like Alan Jackson, do a couple of songs together um, and do his shows. And those, and those shows are a lot of fun because it's, you know, wear your Hawaiian shirt, shorts, and, and, toss, and toss back a couple of cold ones. And, you know, you're having a good time. Um, but yeah, for the most part, you don't see a lot of acts don't will, will not do entire albums because most bands and, and artists aren't aren't design aren't they're not that's not who they are. Um, you know, if you're doing a concept album like The Wall, absolutely you want to do that and do the state. There's a stage show that goes with it. Like for you know for for Pink Floyd, it was first it was the album, then the stage show, and then the movie. Um, but that that does work. Uh, the Who did it with Tommy um, in the early '70s, um, so it's it's not a, it's not an unheard of concept, but you just don't see it a whole lot. Okay. Yeah, and speaking of the film, that's actually and Quadrophenia. Now think about it. There was Tom, <laughs> the Who did Tommy and Quadrophenia. Yes, I, I remember hearing that. Yeah, and like I said, yeah. Metallica just recently did it with the Black album, but it was because it was the anniversary of the Black album. And obviously, if you're going to put out a new version of the CD, quote-unquote, digitally remastered, although I don't hear yeah. any differences. Um, you know, it... it Jay-Z like, probably does the Blueprint album in its entirety, or it, or some variation thereof, I would, I would, I would assume. Yeah. But uh, speaking of the film, it did come out in July of 1982. It was written by Roger Waters himself, and it was directed by Alan Parker and starred Bob Geldof as Pink. And a lot of that animation that, that Gerald Scarf did for the concert was brought back in to the film version, you know, because that just makes sense. Um, and yeah. it was very little dialogue, very little dialogue. They let the music tell the story, which I think was the best way to, to do it. And they included less is more. Yes. They included um, one of the songs that was actually featured on the final cut. Um, when the tigers broke free yep and they split that up in two parts in the film and then it also included um what shall we do now which was originally listed for the album but was one of the songs that columbia records cut because the album was too long right and but the funny thing is the liner notes had already been printed by the time that that decision was made to cut it so if you have the original LP version, the original 1979 vinyl version of The Wall, the lyrics for What Shall We Do Now is included in the liner notes because it was a last-minute subtraction from the album. So everybody's looking at the LP going, they just completely skipped over that, but okay, whatever, let's go on to Young Lust. Like... <laughs> Yeah, keep going. <laughs> um, so, the movie, I, I love the movie. The movie is absolutely fantastic. It's amazing. Mm. Bob Geldof does a great version, uh, a great job playing Pink. And he is actually the one that sings both versions of In the Flesh. And I think he might even sing part of um, uh, Run Like Hell. And waiting for the worms. Yeah. Uh, and you know the the film was just an amazing 
visualization. It was kind of like, to me, because like, obviously I never got to see The Wall live, and they've never put it out on VHS, DVD, or anything like that. Supposedly there's a bootleg version out there, but I've heard the quality is just absolute trash. So I, why waste your time? Yeah, you can't for sure. See, if you can't see what's happening, what's the point of watching it? But I think the movie does a great job of visualizing this story from front to back. So I guess my next question for you is, have you ever seen the movie for The Wall? I gotta be honest, I have not. <gasps> I have not. <laughs> I own the album, um, and, and I, I've, yeah, I... See, when the album came out, I was, uh, let's see, I was, I think, 11 years old when the album came out. Um, so I was not an attendee on the tour. Um, right. So I've not seen it. I've not seen it live. Um, but no, I've never seen the movie. Uh, I know that's crazy. But then again, uh, it wasn't until a couple of years ago that I saw Christmas Story. So uh, I, wow. I might be a little slow on the whole movie uptick thing. Um, but I do own the album, um, as everyone should. It, Dark Side and The Wall should be in everyone's library. I, I know I said before Dark Side, but The Wall, too. Um, those albums should be in everyone's library. I don't care if you've never listened to it. It should still be in your library. If it isn't, your co your collection is not complete. Absolutely. No, I 100% I agree with you. Um, you know, and then they did The Wall live in Berlin, but it wasn't Pink Floyd playing those songs. They brought in uh, Scorpions. Cindy Lauper, Sinead O'Connor, Sinead O'Connor, Cindy Lauper. Uh, yeah, uh, Uta I wouldn't have. Lauper. I wouldn't have equated that. I mean, okay, Scorpions. I, uh, but even so, they're more. They're more of a. They're more of a rock band. Not and and not in the Pink Floyd sense. I I don't know that any of those artists make any sense. Um, well, unless of course they were fans, but um, I I don't know. Yeah, but, it's, hard, it's hard for me to say. Right. Uh, Ute Lemper, I hope I'm saying that wrong, right. I've never heard of this person before. Uh, Tim Curry, which okay. he makes sense because he, he was Frankenfurter in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which is another classic that everybody should see. Oh, for once. sure. And I can see where he'd be a Floyd fan. Um, cause there's a lot of, there's a lot of people who are fans, mm -hmm. um, and some you wouldn't expect, uh, to yeah. be Floyd fans. Uh, Van Morrison. Brian Adams are the ones that they mention here. So, okay. Scorpions, Cindy Lauper, Sinead O'Connor, Ute Lemper, Tim Curry, Van Morrison, and Brian Adams. They all did this wall, uh, the wall live in Berlin as a charity uh, at the site of the once occupied part of the Berlin Wall. Okay. Um, it was broadcast. Well, the Scorpions, because they were handy, because they're from Germany. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you know they're from Han they're they're from, they're from Hanover, Germany. So that's yeah. Right. So they they were handy, um, although uh, great musicians in their own right. Um, not to take away from it, not to take away from any of these acts. Um, no. But like I said, you know, you could I think you'll find that there's a lot of fans of that album or the band um, that you wouldn't expect, and clearly some of the names on that list you would not equate as being even being fans, but um, mm. they are. So. You know, that's, and that's the thing about artists. Um, a lot of these artists will like a whole bunch of, will, will like such a, a wide range of music. Absolutely. Um, 
MGA I remember, um, I can't remember his name, um, but I know Quiet Riot's drummer back in the day. Now they were a metal band, or that was their that was the that was the whole look anyway. Yeah. Um, and the drummer said in an interview that he really likes that he really liked Culture Club. Um, he said he says Kevin Dubrow, the lead singer, hates it when I say this, but he says I really like Culture Club. To me, they sound like '60s Motown. Um. Okay, I guess, but hey, you know, but but that the whole point is, um, a lot of these artists will have a wide range of uh, of of artists and and mm-hmm. songs and stuff like that. Um, one of Elvis's favorite artists was a guy named was, was a guy named Clyde McFadder, who was one of many of the lead singers of the Drifters in the nineteen fifties and sixties. Uh, that was one of his favorite singers, and there were his his personal record collection was full of McFadder albums. Um, not something you'd expect in that library. Um, and I was, of course, he also hung with Led Zeppelin too for a time. Um, so yeah, but you just never know. Yeah, that there's a combination for you. Elvis and Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Well, all right. Uh, perfect, perfect example. Um, Cliff Burton, God rest his soul. One of the original, he's actually the second bass player for Metallica. A lot of people don't know that. Right. Um, but uh, he is a huge fan of classical music, and that's where yep. a lot of those sounds that he produced on Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets came from. Um, uh, MGK, Machine Gun Kelly. Yep. He's actually a heavy metal fan. Yep. But he can rap like nobody else. I mean, so. Yeah. You know, uh, not, surprising, Zeta, not surprising. Not surprising if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, to do that, so you know, I and it's, and it's great because the your listeners benefit from that, um, from your wide range of musical tastes, and a lot of these guys were were classically trained uh, as kids, especially a lot of these English artists. Um, they would go, they were they would they go through uh, music school, um, and and even stateside, you had people that would go through Juilliard uh, in New York City. Um, not surprising because you want to be, you know, multifaceted. And I think that's what, that's where you develop your appreciation for music and you hone your skills. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can take your influence, your influences come from so many pl- different places and the stuff that you hear. Um, it's really kind of crazy, but if you think about it, it's like, yeah, that makes sense. You know, and, and, and you know, I, I a hundred percent agree with everything that you just said, because, you know, I mean, even people that are doing like Broadway style stuff or mm-hmm. or even screenwriting or, you know, yep. stuff like that. Juilliard is still the mecca of where you would go to learn that. Oh, it is. That's the Harvard of music schools. And uh, my ex, my ex fiance's younger sister, right when her and I started dating, was actually had just gotten an internship at Juilliard. And she was one of only twenty people that were considered. Oh, that's a that's a big deal that place. Um, and a lot of there's a been there's a lot of artists out there who you'd never expect were um, were in that program or who or who graduated from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, um, and we we talked about a lot about some of the subsequent releases. Obviously, it's been released on cassette tape. It's been released on CD. Um, it just recently got a digital release, um, but in 2000 is when they finally released "Is There Anybody Out There?" The Wall Live 1980 to 81, which is from those concerts from Earl's mm-hmm. Court that I was just talking about. 
Um, and then it was uh, remastered in 2012 when they did the wall immersion box set, which includes obviously both discs of the wall and both discs of the live album. Shockingly, it does not include the film soundtrack. Well, that'll be another money-making opportunity. They haven't released the the, the movie on on Blu-ray yet either, which I'm kind of shocked. It's a hold on. they're holding on to it. I I'm guessing it'll see the light of day at some point, and perhaps one of the other doesn't want to see it doesn't want to see it released again. That could be the other part of it. Um, and when that person, I, I mean, I hate to sound morbid, but when that person goes, is when it might find its way to the shelves or to or to the consumer once again. The mm-hmm. remastered version, where they'll clean it up and. And, and, you know, wash it through with digital and wash it through computers and make it really sound good. Um, take it from the original analog. So I would bet at some point it'll see the light of day again. It's, it just, it just might be a while. Yeah. Um, so the total length of the original album is 80 minutes and 39 seconds. So it almost fits on a CD, but not quite. Not quite. Um, and like we said, we had mentioned, um, you know, that it, it peaked number one in 10 different countries. The only country it did not peak number one in that was actually recording these kind of things at that time. The United Kingdom. Okay. Yep. It was number one in the U.S., Swedish, Spain, Norwegian, New Zealand, Germany, Dutch, Canada, Australia, and Austria. Well, the UK's listening habits are, are a lot different from our state side, and that's always been the case. I mean, there's artists who were marginally successful here that were huge hits in England and vice versa. Yep. Uh, it hit the charts again in uh, 1990. Uh, the yeah. only country that, that recorded it, though, was uh, the Netherlands, Dutch, and it peaked at number 19 for that release. In 2005 and 2006, which is probably one of the very first remasters that came out, I'm guessing, um, the highest it peaked was number nine, and that was in Spain. In 2011 through 2021, I'm not seeing anything here underneath 40. The highest, okay, nope, okay, I'm right. The highest it peaked was 38, and that was in Ireland. Yeah. Everywhere else, it's lower. But it's still an iconic album, no matter how you slice it. Uh, U.S. top rock rock albums for Billboard is 26th. The Billboard top 200, it's ranked 17th. Uh, Another Brick in the Wall, part two, in November 1979, so even before the album came out, number one in the U.K. Uh, January 7th in 1980s when it hit the, the U.S. charts. Number one, Run Like Hell hit the Billboard Pop Singles chart on June 9th, 1980. It was ranked 59th or 53rd. And then in March 1980, for Norway's singles chart, it was number one for another brick in the wall. Part two. Mm-hmm. The, the album has been uh, rated many, many multiple times platinum and even in some countries gold. It's 23 times platinum in the United States. Crazy. With 11,500,000 copies sold, 
And then from 1991 to 2008, it sold another additional 5,000 or 5,220,000 copies. Hmm. Well, no matter how you slice it, I I think, uh, you know, I I think we can summarize by saying um, it's an iconic album um, that still resonates today and perhaps even more so now than it did when it was when it was released. Um, And you'll be able if you don't own a copy of it, go get one uh, and listen to it and, and, and see what it and see what it does for you. Um, yep. You know, it, it, it's going to affect everyone, I think, differently. Mm-hmm. Um, it has it's one of those albums that um, that can do that. You know, you'll be affected one way. I might be affected another way, you know, and Joe down the street might be affected a different way from both of us. Um, and that is that's the mark of a truly great album. Well, and here's an interesting thing, because we mentioned that it's been popping up on the charts a lot again recently. Yeah. So in 2019, it was ranked 62nd on the U.S. Top 200. Right. 2020, a year when nobody was allowed to go anywhere or do anything. 25th on the U.S. Top Rock Albums. 2021, when a lot of people were still locked up. Yeah. U.S. Top Rock Albums, 39th. So this album is still alive and still doing very well. In 2018, it was ranked 98th. So that's a lot of growth Yeah. in sure. four years. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely it is. And, you know, I mean, we've talked about it. This album was well before its time. Yep. It tackled a lot of things that I don't think anybody was ready to deal with at that time, which is why you said a lot of people were just like, what the hell is this? But I think as the years went by, and I and I want to say maybe the movie helped out a lot. Oh, sure, Cause like sure. Because like I said, everything was visualized. You see exactly what that character Pink was going through, and it, it's, it's a great movie. You're doing yourself a disservice, sir, by not seeing it yet, but... I know. Yeah. Well, we'll put that on my list. Um, you know, definitely got to put it on the list. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm. I actually was shocked because I was actually going to buy a new copy of it on Blu-ray because you know I have a 4K TV. Why not watch it the best way possible? Right. Was shocked to see that it is not available on Blu-ray yet. So, but Pink Floyd's website does have a brand new DVD version available and i'm like why dvd why not just go full tilt but maybe like you said gilmore versus waters we may never see the movie on on uh until whichever if 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 i'm right and one of them opposes such a release you know we may have to wait until uh head to the recording studio in the sky uh to see the light of for it to see the light of day but who knows Mm -hmm. you know and Again, that's something that I don't think was ever really heard of back in that time. Have you ever heard of a full album getting a film treatment like like the Wall did? I mean, I understand it's a concept album, you know, and I mean that that's uh, well, Tommy, Tommy and Quadrophini, as I mentioned earlier with the Who. Um, yeah, I mean the the Wall wasn't the first wasn't the first one. Um, it's notable, obviously, but it wasn't the first. Um, I, I think, I, I think the who kind of started with that and that's what the set and the seventies were really about a lot of that, um, you know, concepts and movies and, and, and whatnot. 
Um, you know, Tommy's a, both of both Tommy and Quadrafini are are classics, and the and the Wall is right up there with them. Mm-hmm. Um, there are others, but those are the ones that come to mind that readily come to mind uh, for me in terms of of classic concept albums that became more than that. Stage shows, um, Tom, the Tommy Stage Show, I think that was in Broadway on Broadway for a while. Um, so yeah, it's it's uh, those are concepts and those are those are kind of entities onto themselves now. Um, and at the time, they were just they were they were groundbreaking at the time. Um, and now you know they're still out there. I mean, you know, you can get you can get copies of the stage show soundtrack or the or the actual album itself. Uh, see the film. Um, all that stuff. So yeah, no, the wall was was not the first, but it was one of the most notable. Yeah, uh, the wall movie actually won two BAFTAs for best original song for another brick in the wall, obviously. Yep. And then best sound with uh, James Guthrie, Eddie Joseph, Clive Winter, some big names there in sound production. Uh, right. Graham Hearthstone, Nick uh, Nicholas Le Misua. Um, a documentary was produced about the making of the wall entitled uh, The Other Side of the Wall and included interviews with Parker, Scarf, and Clips of Waters and it aired on MTV in 1982 See, I, I thought it got some MTV airplay I wasn't mm-hmm. I, I couldn't recall it off the top of my head but I, I, I feel like it had gotten some so it looks like I was right Yep uh, The soundtrack uh the film soundtrack contains almost all the songs, albeit with several changes, uh, yeah. as well as additional material. The only songs from the album not used in the film are Hey You, which was shocking to me because Hey You is an amazing song. Uh, yeah. And The Show Must Go On, which that that one you can kind of do with or without. Sure. Um, hey You was deleted as Waters and Parker felt the footage was too repetitive. 80% of the footage appears in a montage sequence elsewhere but a work print version of the scene was included as a bonus feature on the DVD. Um, soundtrack from Columbia Records was listed in the film's end credits, but only a single containing When the Tigers Broke Free and the re-recorded Bring the Boys Back Home were released. Mm-hmm. When the Tigers Broke Free later became a bonus track on the eight, 1983 album The Final Cut. Mm-hmm. Uh, guitarist David, uh, David Gilmore dismissed the album as a collection of songs that had been rejected for the wall, but were being recycled. The song in the edit used for the single also appears on Echoes, the mm-hmm. best of Pink Floyd. Yep. Uh, so, interesting there about how, you know, that, that has kind of landed with that. Yep. Um, uh, we talked about Siskel and Ebert earlier. They gave the film two thumbs up. Um, and they described it as a stunning vision of self-destruction, one of the most horrifying musicals of all time, but the movie is effective. The music is strong and true, the images are like sledgehammers, and for once, the rock and roll hero isn't just a spoiled narcissist, but a real, suffering image of all the despair of this nuclear age. This is a really good movie. There you go. Bringing endorsement. That was that was that was good stuff back from uh, back in the day. Yep, and the movie actually holds a seventy-one percent rating on Rotten Tomatoes based on twenty-eight critic reviews, with an average score of seven point three out of ten. 
Critical nice. consensus. Pink Floyd's expression of gener- generational angst is given a striking visual form. The Wall, although this ambitious features narrative struggles to many, its provocative images and psychedelic soundtrack into a compelling whole. Mm-hmm. So, like you said, you know, a lot of people were were very confused about what the wall was back in 1979. But yep. I think I think today, you know, with the film and everything else, um, it it helps people kind of understand what the film, the film and the album are supposed to be, as opposed to what could have what it, how it was received back in in 1979. Yep. Would you would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. Yep. I definitely agree with that. Um I mean, it's really hard to to talk about this for for 2 hours. I mean, it's 40 some years old and you know, I mean, we could sit there and go track by track by track, but I don't really want to do that. You know, I I think we've hit on just about everything that needs to be hit on. Yeah, I I think to summarize, um I mean, clearly the album is is what it is. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think to pay tribute to it is, is, is a good thing. And I'm glad you're doing that. Um, and those, that's those songs um, from all the, and really their music as a, as a whole uh, is always going to have a place uh, somewhere in radio, whether it's terrestrial radio, your classic rock stations or, or on, you know, on our medium here on online, um, it, it has a place and will always have a place and rightfully so, because it should, um, you know, we can always hope at some point in time before they both go, that the two of them can bury the hatchet and actually be good with one another. Will that happen? It doesn't look that way, but Hey, you never know. Um, yeah, and that's but cool. you know, but as, but as you said, I, I think we've kind of covered the whole nine yards okay. of this. And now I think it's, you know, let people listen to the album and, you know, and, and share what their, what their opinions are. Um, yes. So that's, yeah, I, I think that's been great. So. Yeah. And for those that might've missed the original airing of money's crazy soundtrack on Wednesday night, we are going to be playing it again. So you guys have an opportunity that, like Gary saying, you know, I mean, bringing awareness to a 40 something year old album that still resonates and can still be as powerful today as it was back in 1979, you don't do that just once. You can't. You have to give people a chance to live this album. And the reason why, and I know I mentioned this at the beginning of Money's Crazy Soundtrack, but the reason why I included the live version of it, and I think Gary will agree with me here, it's the most complete version of the wall that you're ever going to find with the inclusion of What Shall We Do Now, Yes. Uh, the Last Few Bricks, and you don't get the faded out versions of another brick in the wall part two and some of the other albums that were or songs i should say that were clipped for like gary said radio and then even just because uh the the record label was ridiculous in thinking that the album needed to be limited you're not you're not you're not the whim of program directors or a and r people um at, at record labels um a and r for those that don't know is is is, is short for artists and repertoire um, so that's why I wanted to include the live version, but also because you get to hear how people reacted to each moment of that show. 
since it was a show, it was not just a concert. You see these guys building the wall collectively, or not mm-hmm. collectively, but you know during the entire duration of the concert. There, there's even moments because I've seen photos of it where it's literally you just see David Gilmore's face through bricks, and then you see Roger Waters over on this side through bricks. It, it, it's it's an amazing visualization, and I've just seen the pictures from the live album that they released in 2000, but. That's why I included the live version is so that you guys get it in its entirety, the way it was meant to be heard. And yes, we're not sanctioned by the FCC. Oh, no, no, no. So you are getting this album uncut in its entirety from start to finish. Limited breaks. We're going to do it again Friday. Oh, wait, it is Friday. Uh, so we'll do it tonight, uh, 11 to 1.30 a.m., and then we'll do it Saturday. Ooh, let's do it 5 to 7.30. And then we'll do it the same time on Sunday, 5 to 7.30. And then we'll do it again Monday, 7 to 10.30 again. Sounds good. I'm the station manager, so I can make those decisions. You can do those things. <laughs> and the only reason we're playing it that many times is because Gary goes live on Tuesday, and I don't want to step on Gary's toes. Oh, yeah, you you do your thing, I'll do mine. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, hey, I, and, and folks, again, if you want to hear my show, tune in, RedlineRadioLLC.com, Tuesday night, 7 to 11, I'll play the hits of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Coming up on May 3rd, we're going to be doing all 80s uh, on the program as we do the first Tuesday of every month. We do all 80s, um, so tune in for that. Uh, we'll take your requests, dedications, and uh, and random musings, whatever works for you. Um, so, but if you, if you listen to the program, we love it. We thank you. If you haven't heard the program, we, I encourage you to tune in. Um, and Hey, even shout out. Hey, wild man, I'm listening. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll certainly appreciate that, but, uh, we have a good time on the program and you will too, if you tune in, that's uh, Tuesdays, Redline radio, LLC, 7 PM to 11 PM. Yeah. And, uh, do you know who your auto spotlight this week is going to be? Or have you not? Um, I'm going to keep down to wraps. Give people a reason to tune in. That's it. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> that's 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 radio promo one hundred and one. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. You know, and I don't normally try to give out what the soundtrack that I'm going to do every week on Money's Crazy Soundtrack until, you know, like the week of it airing. Since mine, you know, mine's a little bit different than what you do. I right. want people to try to tune in and everything like that. But yep. you know, th- this was something special. It, it was an idea that I had floating around. And I wasn't sure if I was going to do it or not. I just didn't know if that kind of thing flew on radio nowadays. And then when I called you and asked you about it, you're like, fucking do it. And then play the interview that Roger Waters did afterwards, too. So, yes, when you guys tune into the replay, the interview will be there as well. And, you know, you guys, I'm not going to take anything away from anybody for that. And, you know, I, I, I just I'm having a really good time doing this. And if you guys jump over to RedlineRadioLLC.com or our Android app, you can listen to it at any of those times I mentioned. And then you can also hear Gary on Tuesday nights as well. Wow, man, I appreciate you taking time out to do this with me, man. Absolutely. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate you 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 loving the call to me and and doing this. And, uh, you know, I I had fun with this. Um, Great uh, great chat, great conversation, and uh, looking at at a great band with a great body of work. 
Absolutely. And like Gary said, if you guys have never heard The Wall before, you know, check out Money's Crazy soundtrack, listen to the live version of it, get the definitive cut of it, and then go out and you can get it on iTunes, you can get it on Amazon, you can get yep. all those places that sell digital music. Or, like he said, they've re-released the vinyl, so you can even get the vinyl print of it again. And you can probably go to your local, you can probably go to your local used record shop, and there's probably a few copies there uh, waiting for you to come up there and bring it home. Yep, and it, it is it is definitely worth the listen. Like I said, I discovered it probably what by that point, 15, 20 years after its release. Yep. And, you know, I mean, I've, I've been listening to it ever since. I know my wife hates it sometimes because I'll get in the car and throw it on. She's like, do we have to listen to Pink Floyd's The Wall? I'm like, yes, woman. Be quiet. Listen. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> I would never say that to my wife. I'd be divorced if I did. Yeah, you would be. <laughs> all right, brother. All right. Well, you, uh, hey, you take it, you take it easy. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk to all of you on Tuesday night, 7 o'clock, RedlineRadioLLC.com. All right. Thank you very much, Gary. You enjoy the rest of your weekend, brother, and uh, we will talk soon, all right? All right, man. Check you later. All right. Thank you very much, man. All right. That was the wild man, Gary Winter, joining me here talking about uh, Pink Floyd and the wall and all that. So if you guys want to hear more about it, go ahead and check out Money's Crazy Soundtrack or check out Gary Winter. He plays a lot of Pink Floyd, too. I know that. I've heard it on his show, so I can vouch for that. But... That's going to do it for Money's Crazy Mind this week. We're going to shorten it up just a little bit this week. Until next time, guys, have a week.